Welcome to the Nintendo Power Zone. We are a video cast slash podcast dedicated to bringing you the best Nintendo related topics. As always, I'm your host, Nice One, and we are joined by my co host, Blues, and a very special guest. We have the author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation, but he's also the author of The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution That Swept Virtual Reality. He is also the director of the upcoming Console Wars documentary, at least one of them. We have Blake J. Harris. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back on. It has been several years, um, and I'm glad that you're still rocking it, still spreading the gospel of Nintendo and retro gaming, and uh, thanks for having me back. Oh, it is our absolute pleasure to have you back on the show. Uh, but before we jump into the interview, we have a bunch of congratulations. I just want to toss your way. Uh, so first off, you announced the expanded edition of your second book, The History of the Future. You have announced the release date. I'm sorry that you've announced your streaming partner for the documentary, uh, CBS All Access, and the documentary will be premiering at South by Southwest this year. So congratulations on all those fronts. That is all huge news. Yeah, thank you. It's really nice. Uh, you know, I basically feel like I've spent my past eight years just working on two projects, one about Sega Nintendo, one about Oculus. And that's how I like it. I love diving deep into these things. And clearly, even when I'm done, quote unquote, I'm, you know, there's still so much more of the story I want to tell. So with the expanded edition of the paperback, that's going to have 70 more pages. Like, I finally feel like I can get the rest out there. And then similar with the documentary, like, it's so nice to actually be able to have a visual component and have the firsthand interviews and get that out there, too. And, and I love both stories. So I'm really excited to that they're, uh, you know, they're going to be coming out. What's cool about the documentary is it's kind of always been kind of hand in hand with the book. So like, t- obviously the book came out much sooner, but we're, we're getting so close. I can't wait for that South by Southwest premiere. And I have to say, I'm a little angry at you because I have now had to get myself into another streaming service. So I've now got the gamut, Netflix, Hulu, CBS, all access, Disney plus, ESPN Plus, you got me all. I'm about to just cancel my cable. Oh, I, know, I, know, I know, I know, it's kind of annoying. But here's the good news that that like that's the whole point of why CBS wanted to make this show because they want to you know get new subscribers and then because of people like you, they'll be able to make other cool content like this or whether it's other video game content or and I'll be able to make more stuff. So I know it's annoying <laughs> entering this streaming era, but CBS has been an awesome partner to us and uh, and. The Picard show, I re- highly recommend you check out too. They've got a bunch of good stuff. I'm so. gonna wait for a few episodes. I just, I really like to yeah, yeah. binge because I'm used to that yeah. Netflix format now. They've they've indoctrinated me to the point where I like <laughs> I need the whole season at once. Yeah. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into this inter- interview proper. Uh, I want to start with console wars because this, there's so much on the horizon when it comes to that project because it's not just a book anymore, and we're coming up on that book's 60 year anniversary. And I'm not going to lie, I've read it about 10 times at this point. Uh, <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me how much I, I enjoy the book and how engaging it still is. But now that you're moving into the TV space, what changes in terms of engagement? Like, what do you see? How does the interaction from just you know the, the reading switch when we're going to be sure. watching? How do, you, how do you capture our imagination the same way? Yeah, no, that's an awesome question because like – in, in, essentially, that's what I've been asking myself for the past two years. And me, you know, I'm, I'm co-directing the documentary with my friend and collaborator Jonah Tulis, and that's like what we're always trying to ask ourselves: like, 
the, the book is a 550 page quick read though uh, story. And then like, how do you condense it to like a, you know, 80 to hundred minute version of events? What can you do in a documentary that you can't do in a book? What should you be doing? Um, these were like all the questions that we asked each other and um, the rest of the team over the past couple of years. And so, you know, one of the, the, one of the most fun things, and I especially think for people our age, even uh, college age student, it basically, uh, you know, like with the book, I always say that everything I write, I write with my grandmother in mind. Like, how can I get my grandma to care about Sega, Tom Kalinske, Sonic the Hedgehog? And and to do so, it's not, you know, it's not to rely on nostalgia. It's not to rely on old commercials because my grandma probably doesn't remember them. Um, but, and, you know, I could try to describe them, but, but the, you don't get that visceral feeling. Like, and so the most fun thing has been, you know, we think of the documentary as like a time capsule. So getting in all the pop culture elements of the era, getting in the actual trade show footage, getting in what it felt like to go through that has been the most fun thing and one of the biggest differentiators. And so, you know, even if you were not alive during the Welcome the Next Level campaign of commercials, the ones that ended with the Sega screen, the Sega, you know, you'll still at least get it in a way that, um, you know, it's talked about in the book, but I also didn't rely too much on trying to get people to feel an emotional connection to that because I just think it was not possible. And then, and then also just like the, the best part is the, 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 having it not be in my own words. Uh, you know, I think that I did, I think that what made the book work so well was that I was able to capture people's voices, but um, now you'll actually get to see, you know, they, I, 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 I was so lucky with console wars, you know, it was not only a great story of like a significant battle that meant a lot to a lot of people um, and that we all have memories of, but it was just, you know, the, the characters were so incredible. And, uh, you know, I, I've, there, there have been some critics of the book and they say, oh, people don't really talk like that sometimes, but they do. And now people will get to see them. And Tom Kulinski is a way more interesting speaker than I am. So, you know, being able to have him tell the story or Al Nilstein or Ellen Beth Van Buskirk or Peter Mayne or Howard Lincoln or any of these people, like, it's just so cool to have them all there in one place because these people were pioneers. They, 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 what they did created the game industry as we know it today and like the best rivalries that you know Sega and Nintendo pushed each other to new heights that helped us in the end uh, you know as as gamers and as fans I can actually attest uh I we had Tom Kalinske on this show a month after we had you that first time Tom Tom has a pair on him I'm he's a he is the most bold but cool person you ever meet like if I could have a drink with one semi-celebrity and just be completely at ease with that person. It would be Tom. He he he's brash, but he's not in a impolite way. He he's just a cool dude. So yeah, totally agree. Like I mean, one one of the hardest parts coming off of console wars, aside from like the you know the nostalgia and the emotional resonance that a lot of people have to Sega and Nintendo, was like find trying to find a subject or subjects that was worthy of my time, or maybe that's not the way to put it, but like that, that I was interested enough to write about because Tom was such a cool guy, such a great role model, a person who I didn't realize it at the time had such an impact on my childhood behind the scenes. And so it was hard to find another story with, with, with characters that were worth following. And, and, you know, Tom really is everything you said. I've talked to him, you know, at least once a week for the past five years now. And he's still the person that I'd pick to like have dinner with. Cause he's still, there's no shortage of stories there. And he's a great storyteller. Not only that, but the, I am a terrible person when it comes to names. Tom remembers your name. He speaks to you once. Yeah. He remembers your name. I spoke to him again, just personally, about three years after. He remembered me. Remember the interview? 
That guy, awesome. that guy is on some next level genius shit, and it's a no wonder how he was able to do what he did with Sega and the team that he built. Uh, let's go ahead and move on. Uh, what are the biggest challenges of turning a book like Console Wars into a documentary? The biggest challenge for me has just been the scope of the story. You know, the book is 500 plus pages. And to be honest, it could have been twice that length. Like there's no shortage. You know, you could do like a, a whole page on every, the making of every interesting game. But I tried to keep the book, you know, have a central narrative and to keep it moving. And then for the doc to, to try to do it in like, um, you know, the, the final film is going to be like between 85 and 90 minutes. So basically trying to figure out what not to include and who not to include also. Um, it, it's really tough because I know the full story. So, you know, if we're going to do the creation of Sonic in five minutes and the book spends 50 pages on it, and on it because there's so many people that are involved, um, that, that has been the hardest part. Um, but, you know, it, it, I think it's it's a good skill, um, and, and I and I have to say it's it's very helpful and nice for me too to know that the book exists, so that you know you you are inherently going to be sort of like just giving like the uh, the short version of everything. Um, so at least knowing if you wanted to read more about Mortal Kombat or the Senate hearings, there's at least there's the text is out there. Um, but that but that but that's been the hardest part. Awesome. So. Key differences between the documentary, like how what, what's the fact gathering like? Is it was it part of the book writing process, or did you have to basically start from scratch when working on the documentary? And also, was there anybody who was willing to talk about that was willing to you know appear in the book but not in the documentary? Yeah, that's a good question. So the this is sort of a unique situation. Uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, because we are fortunate to have a the, you know a TV series based on it, a doc based on the book or based on the same story. But um, it was unique too that uh, I wrote the book in 2013. It came out in 2014, like you said, six, almost six years ago. Um, and we actually filmed almost all the main interviews back in 2013. So I had this, the, you know, the information. I had done the interviews while I was writing the book. So it wasn't like stuff came out after that I wish that I had put in there, though obviously there are different stories in each. Um, but but I remember being very stressed at the time that we were filming stuff while I was supposed to be writing the book because it was my first book. I didn't know if I'd be able to finish it. Um, but it turned out to be for the best because I was also spending more time with these people. Um, and so the, the fact gathering was like, you know, I, I work very um, like – perhaps unsurprisingly, like I need to see things in writing. So for me, having a transcript of the interview or transcribing my own interviews is like what I need to help see the story. So um, after we did transcripts of all the interviews, um, and this was after the book came out, just going through that was like the best way to figure out, um, you know, where to sort of find the original pieces. And then of course, a big difference with the doc and the book is not, it's not just if the information is interesting, it's like how the person delivers it, how they tell the story um, is important or at least part of what you want to weigh. Um, and so just watching through those interviews several times. Um, but yeah, like that was, uh, that was, that was pretty much the process. And then also seeing what you have, you know, uh, as with any storytelling, it is, there any nonfiction storytelling it is, it is it, a, a part of the process is what can you get what do you have access to you know i was never able to interview uh mr arakawa the president of nintendo of america um and i tried to you know honor him in the book but i but i think it's kind of obvious that there was you know his perspective was lacking and i didn't try to hide that but you know you have to work with with what you have um 
fortunately, I believe everyone who I everyone who we wanted to be in the documentary agreed to be in it. Maybe it took a little while to make that happen, but we were at least able to get everyone. And then in terms of like the archival material, um, you know, there are certain events that um, that you know there's not much there's not video records of, or it would be hard to sort of show in a way that would be compelling. So maybe that's not as much you know as big of a beat in the in the movie in the documentary, or maybe something that we would try to animate. So just trying to weigh all those things. But I always like to look at it from like the perspective of like a chef. Like I want to have the ingredients first, see what I have, and then start mixing things together so that I can try to make the best with the ingredients that I have. Awesome. All right. So not really console wars related, but I'm going to lump it in there. You uh, In November, you started putting out uh, content rated by an oral history on the ESRB. Yeah. Discusses a lot of things about the formation and the role it plays in gaming society back then and, and now. What led you to this project? Because this is really a different beat from what you've been doing over the last few years. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I would really encourage people to read it. It's uh, It was like, it's like a I think it's like 20,000 word oral history of the ESRB, the organization that rates the games and how that all started. Um, and, and I guess part of it is like, actually it, some of it is very related, you know, like the, the origins of the ESRB go back to the, the Senate subcommittee hearings from 1993 with Mortal Kombat and Night Trap and the stuff that's mentioned in the book. And, and like kind of getting back to what I said at the top of the show about like, you know, doing expanded edition, doing the documentary. It's like, these, these are two stories, Oculus story and the Sega Nintendo story that means so much to me that I'm sure, you know, it's, it's, it, the reason I do them is because I'm personally very curious. So uh, I, if there's like a sort of related angle to explore, I'm usually pretty interested to do so. So the ESRB um, had contacted me. They, they were for their 25th anniversary. They were thinking about doing some sort of article or something. You know, it, it ended up becoming much bigger than what we had originally envisioned because the story was very fascinating. Um, and so, once they reached out to me, um, I was pretty quick to agree to to want to learn more. Um, and there's even things that I, a lot of things I didn't know even about this, like the Senate hearings from 1993. Um, you know, I did like the video game violence act or whatever it was, <laughs> the, you know, the, the almost the censoring of the video game industry. And so uh, I, I found it fascinating, too, because I'm also someone who really is very, uh, very pro free speech. I, you know, uh, like big proponent of the First Amendment. And you people look at organizations like the ESRB or the MPAA, the movie ratings agency, and think like, oh, these are anti free speech. But uh, you know, one way to look at it and the way that I would look at it is that because of them, uh, we are able to, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a self-governing organization. So it's basically just creating like community standards. And so you can still do whatever you want, but as a parent, you want to, you know, have the shorthand of knowing what your child is going to be using. And I think that's good. I think as long as it's not, um, you know, actually there was a Supreme court ruling that basically because of the, the great enforcement by the ESRB video games are protected as a first amendment um, piece of work. So uh, I, I found all that side of it very interesting too. Yeah. I thought it was a pretty good read. It kind of came out of nowhere. It was, was not expecting like this. Cause you know, typically I'm not going to say I've kind of followed your Twitter religiously to see what, what's, what new is happening over there. Like, Oh, are we getting a new book or news on the project? Yeah. And then I saw the, the, this and I was like, this is awesome. And, Kind of, if you were to do an expanded edition of console words, you could throw out like 90% of what's in here into, into that yeah. and <laughs> improperly. 
Um, yeah, and like I mean that, and like that that was originally the project was like they kind of just wanted something for their 25th anniversary. Like I, I don't I don't even think it was really supposed to be public facing that much. Um, it was more just because I was thought, hey, if they're gonna give me the access and this is a good excuse for me to tell it. But then uh, working with them is, was 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 great because most of the time when you work with someone, an editor or whatever, a publication, they're pretty adamant about like word counts or or sort of like parameters that aren't that are you know arbitrary. But but like working with the ESRB people, as the, as I found more stuff and as we you know they 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 were thinking more stuff, like we very organically expanded what it was, and they were super encouraging which was an unusual experience for me. So I really enjoyed that, that process. Um, and it gave me a great excuse to interview Tom Kalinske again and Howard Lincoln and Don James from Nintendo and, and all these people that were sporadically in console wars and were involved in the formation of this organization. Awesome. So right now the ESRB is actually under pretty heavy scrutiny over, you know, things like loot boxes and, uh, microtransactions uh so i've kind of find the article a little the timing of it i thought it was a little poignant because it's like now that yeah. now that i know that you're that they had asked you to do it i wonder how much of it i don't want to you know say that they're deflecting but it seems like they're deflecting especially under like this intense scrutiny uh do you know if does it did, under did it seem like, yeah, I mean, like I, I, malice I, I, when they get called you up and say like, hey do something for us <laughs> Well, I get, okay, so like, obviously that's outside. Like, I don't, I don't know what their motivations are, and I can't really speak to that. All I can say is that, like, in the entire time of the people I dealt with there, no one ever even like subtly said like, "Oh, this will help," you know, get people focused on other things. Like, at least when I was speaking with them, they're always very sincere, and I think that most organizations, even your podcast, like, there's a mythology to your to your own founding and to like what you stand for. So, I think that they they did genuinely like it. Um, I also think like they, they, from my perspective, it's not, I don't feel like they've gone crazy out of their way to promote this oral history series. You know, they did partner with VentureBeat and put the stuff up there, but like, I don't know. It's not like they're taking out ads. I don't feel like they're trying to distract from something, but that's purely speculation on my part. Um, and I'll also say like, obviously like loot boxes, these are things that have been in the ether of a conversation for a while, but it wasn't like, like I started working on that like a year ago so it you know it, could, it couldn't have been something that we started to like try to deflect something of the past few months but i, I, I asked like, the question it just you know i have to ask it <laughs> yeah no, no, no it's totally fair question and like i i think it's also i think it, you learn a lot about how the organization works the good and the bad and and that is relevant to dealing with loot boxes that's also relevant to like i you know at one point when i was working on this there was like a, a tragic, uh, you know, shooting, and President Trump and other people in the in Congress were talking about video games being bad again. It was like history repeating itself, and so I think that you know, there's a lot in that story that just shows you about how, uh, you know, government works and how self-regulation works, and just a lot of these things coming up over and over again. Um, and so I think there's lessons to be learned and. Uh, and I was I was happy to participate in it, whether it helped deflect attention or not. It's kind of irrelevant to me, though I understand why you'd care and why. I mean, that seems like a fair suspicion. But like from my perspective, they were awesome to work with, and I'm just glad they gave me an excuse to tell more of that story. Do you actually have an opinion on their stance on, on loot boxes and uh, microtransactions in video games? No, I actually don't. I mean, like I just 
I'm, I'm not very well informed, but if you, why don't you tell me a little bit about the situation? Uh, like, basically, they, uh, what, what they said was, is like, so the whole argument is that any game that contains microtransactions and loot boxes should have a higher age rating. Um, we're getting to the point now where some publishers are actually not submitting the, uh, the microtransactions when they set, send the games out for a review and then they add the the, the DLC, through right. DLC, they add it. And the ESRB's stance on it is it's like it doesn't fundamentally change the content of the game, but you know, people are arguing that loot boxes, microtransactions are essentially gambling and gambling. Any games that simulate gambling should have an at least an M rating. And they're, you know, yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds like familiar enough. Like, I guess, I guess I'm familiar with that stuff. So, I mean, uh, I guess it's not just like pro free speech. I'm generally pretty, uh, uh, you know, I guess libertarian with that sort of stuff. So, like, uh, you know, thinking that gambling should be legalized and all that. But at the same time, like, like, like I said, like the purpose of the ESRB is to just, I like what I like about it is that it's it's an assessment. It's it's a tool. Like so, my a parent could say, "Okay, this is a PG thirteen movie. This is a G game." It doesn't mean that like you know, like a kid's if a parent wants a kid to see an R rated movie, they can go see it with with them. So uh, I think that that's like kind of fair. If I was a parent, I would prefer to not have my kid uh, be in a situation where they feel like they need to spend money to, or need to gamble. Like it's less about like it's less about the gambling thing to me than the, than the the uh, you know, the iterative aspect of it and spending money. Um, I, I definitely don't agree that, you know, anytime something blank should be mature. Like, you know, I don't know that there should be like such a strict parameter, but that's also like, I'm glad that it's not my job. I'm glad I'm not making those decisions. Because uh, as we know, like 99.9, every, everything in life is like a gray area. So so coming up with harsh parameters to say, this is M, this is not M, like that seems pretty tough. And that's why I'm glad it, it's not me. But it's, it's so tough. Like, you know, the biggest, there's a million changes to the game industry and the game since 1993, 94, but like the most obvious one that makes their job very interesting, difficult, um, is just that back in 93, 94, you submitted a complete game and that was it. <laughs> maybe you'd have an expansion pack. Maybe you'd release a sequel, but like now, like you were saying, like you could submit a build and then a week later have a different build, or you can, based on customer, based on game, you know, the player feedback, you could change it. And maybe sometimes maybe you would be, uh, you know, doing it as like a sneaky workaround, or maybe sometimes you actually think, well, this will make, this is a mechanic or, you know, this is what we need to make the game better. And it's hard to assess the uh, integrity of intentions like that. So it just, it just makes for a really difficult time. Oh, see, like hitting the home run. I think that if you have uh, loot boxes or gambling or whatever you want to call it, I think it should at least be listed. It doesn't mean that it should be prohibited or whatever, but like, I think that that's, that's some, that's a feature in a game that should be listed just like cartoon violence is listed. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm actually kind of neutral on the on the position. I I don't necessarily view it as gambling, but I can see the arguments for it. Um, but let's go back to the documentary just a bit before we move on to the history of the future. Uh, I know this is always you know I call Console Wars a project because it's more than just you know the book and that's documentary. But there was also a theatrical film in the works. Is that still happening, or has that shifted into a different project within the Console Wars project as a whole? Yeah, great question. That it, it originally we sold the film rights to the book to Sony, 
um, to be a feature film, like sort of like we were saying back then, like social network, but with video games and Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and Scott Rudin were involved producing it. And all those same people, Scott, Seth, and Evan are producing the documentary and they're also producing what the feature film project has now become, which is a television series. And that's also gonna be with CBS All Access. So, um, you know, CBS, in my opinion, did like a very, like I'm, I'm glad that they, uh, embrace the console wars project universe like like you have like you know i i, I could have i could imagine a scenario where they're like oh we're already doing a tv series we don't need a documentary or vice versa but that, that was never how i saw it i saw it as they all make you know they're all great in their own way and they all enhance the whole understanding for people who are interested in it um and so yeah so we're not doing a feature film anymore it is going to be a tv series uh you know I'm sure it wouldn't shock you to know that I'm happy about that as someone who writes very long things. I would prefer not to condense the story to 90 minutes and to actually have like, um, you know, a season or two seasons or whatever it is to tell the full story. Um, so, so I'm pretty psyched about that. See, that's, I, I, I think this is better for the book as a whole because a lot of the shows that are, that I've started to enjoy lately in my thirties are these shows that are geared at this really happened we're going to tell right. it over like six parts and we'll put it, we'll either find a streaming partner or we'll put broadcast on TV. Like the OJ Simpson trial, uh, American crime story that I lived through that. And that show was still engaging me. It was like I was six years old all over again, watching that stuff on the news, but they did such a good job with the casting and, you know, it was so yeah. well acted. I was like, this is the kind of stuff I like now in my 30s <laughs> i love shit like this so i no, feel you're like totally right. better for console wars and the og thing is a great example too because they because the series on fx was awesome cuba Gooding jr is great and david schwimmer and all that stuff and then also around the same time you had that espn documentary that was like the five-part several hour oj documentary and again like someone could say oh well, you're gonna see one or the other or they would cannibalize each other but no they actually one helped the other create more interest and they both were unique in their own way and both were great in my opinion. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, in my perfect world, I would get to be a part of both. So it's nice that it's worked out that way. Um, and, and uh, yeah, like I, 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 I also, I remember when I was in high school, I used to read fiction and my friend said, Oh, you know, when you, everyone reads fiction now, but when you grow up, you only read nonfiction. I was like, I'm never going to read nonfiction. I don't care about real life stuff. And now, like you said, like, that's all I care. That's all I like to read is like what really happened behind the scenes with this thing that I kind of remember. Um, and so th those are the stories that I like to read. Those are the stories I like to watch. And um, so those are unsurprisingly the stories I like to tell. And you know what they say, like reality is stranger than fiction. A lot of the time. So <laughs> it's always cool to well, see. I'm, like sure they, yeah. I'm sure we'll get into it with the history of the future. Cause there's oh. definitely a lot of, stranger than fiction stuff in that but like Actually. that's the whole thing it's like like if i like there's a good example of the history of the future that we can get to but like even with the with the end of uh of console wars uh spoiler alert but like you know say tom kalinsky tries to partner with sony and tries to partner with silicon graphics and it doesn't work out for reasons you can you know look into but but Silicon Graphics ends up working with Nintendo to create N64 and Sony ends up creating the PlayStation. And so like they ended up passing up on the two consoles that were their demise. I'm like, that's so poetic. That's so like only in real life could you get away with telling that story like that. Otherwise it would be like, Oh, too, too obvious, too on the nose. Um, but that's really how it went down. All right. So last couple of questions about console wars. And then I really want to dive into the history of the future, but, uh, 
CBS All Access. How did that happen? Like, how do you get this deal? Because it, how do they do they pursue you? Or is this you guys where you're just still shopping things around? Um. So that I I am an executive producer on the TV series, and I always do my role as like sort of the ambassador to the real life people and to the story. Like, you know, I want to make sure that I know the real people. I want to make sure that they're portrayed as accurately as possible. Um, I mean, obviously it's a dramatization, but like, I, I know these people, I, I want to make sure they're protected. And, um, and so, but, but I guess the point is that like, they're my, my, I'm not, I'm not the chief driving creative force for that. That was, and is Jordan Voigt Roberts, the director and Mike Rosolio, the writer and working with Seth and Evan and point gray. And so that was really like, you know, I, uh, there's a lot, uh, they're the ones driving that. And there's a lot of interest to work with those people, especially with, with Seth and Evan and everything that point gray has done. So, um, you know, I believe at some point they had a, a pitch ready to go and they set up a lot of meetings and then they kept us in the loop to let us know how things were going. And then, uh, at, at some point they said, well, you know, here's the places that are interested. You should go pitch the documentary to them. And then I went out and, uh, Jonah and I, you know, presented, uh, you know, like a little sizzle reel for the documentary and, and, uh, and that was how it went. Awesome. All right. So how they've been as a partner. They've been awesome. Uh, like I, I gave a lot of credit to the ESRB for being a good partner and and cbs all access deserves that too you know you never know when you're getting into bed with someone so, you know all you really have to go off of is like what they've done in the past but you don't know what it would be like to work with them and uh for a company like cbs all access that is still finding its footing you know it's a it's a relatively new streaming service and they're competing against the likes of disney plus and peacock and all these things that you mentioned and so i didn't know what to expect but so far it's been awesome um and the fact that they were willing to do a you know the series and also a documentary is like you know that warms my heart so i i, I couldn't be happier with that well literally once you guys announced the streaming partner i was already like well, here we go I was like, let me, let's go ahead and like <laughs> let's see where, where we can get this extra money from. What can we cut? Came uh, out of well, YouTube. Thank you. It came out of the YouTube fund. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That means a lot. That's like uh, you know, that's like that really is awesome. Um, all right. So. Uh, and I, and I, you, I, I, you know, I'm I am the co-director with Jonah on the documentary, so that's the one that's really like I have very you know the control of the vision, so I can. Promise you, you're not going to be disappointed. And I feel very confident saying the same about the TV series, though. We'll have to see how that goes. But but so far, the pilot script's awesome, and everything's going great. So I, I think you you won't regret uh, the allocation of funds to CBS Online. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. So now, the history of the future. I really can't wait to talk about this book. So I'm, I'm on my third read of this book. And uh, I have to say, the book has definitely got a vibe of like a pseudo-sequel to The Accidental Billionaire's was that intentional? Um, I mean, The Accidental Billionaires, just answer for our viewers and listeners who don't know, it's like that was the book by Ben Mastrick that became The Social Network. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorite books. I'm looking at it. It's right over there. Um, I, it was not necessarily intentional, but I've said in the past, and it's very true, that Ben Mesrick is probably the biggest or one of the biggest influences on my writing style, on my approach to storytelling. And, and, and so, like... I, I guess it's not surprising that the combination of my being very inspired and um, being a big fan of Ben's work. And then the fact that I did see that it was very, I definitely saw this as like a sequel to the social network in the sense that 
it's a story that for the first, I mean, the whole thing is about Oculus, but after they get acquired by Facebook in 2014 for $3 billion. And then the second half of the book is sort of a view of Facebook 10 years beyond the accidental billionaires of like how Facebook's changed sort of through the lens of Oculus. And so I did really see it as a, uh, as a sequel in that regard, I think it will make a good sequel-ish thing to the social network. And I also think it's like, it really does show you how much Facebook has changed. Uh, you know, as anyone somewhat familiar with Oculus or the book would know, Palmer Luckey, the, the, the brilliant founder of Oculus, ends up being fired from Facebook for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. But like, you know, he, he ultimately he, he his personality is very much like Mark Zuckerberg's was back in 2004 you know hacker tinkerer sort of a you know little bit of a pushing the envelope sort of a guy and it's just interesting to see that now 10 years later Facebook has no place for someone like that uh, because the company has changed so much all right so that leads me to my next question why Oculus? Your last book delves into subject matter. For the most part, a lot of the consumers of video games wouldn't have been privy to due to the fact that information wasn't as readily available. We didn't have the internet sure. and we didn't have all these like in-depth documentaries and we didn't have authors like you, you know, standing beside these people while they were working on the content. Uh, and uh, another thing is that from a consumer standpoint, the Oculus story is one that we lived through we got like semi-regular updates on to the building process up to its release you know the kickstarter and even after the fact what happened to palmer like we were all we lived through this we we're privy to we didn't obviously we didn't have the same experience palmer had um but sure. this is a story that the information isn't as difficult to obtain as i would say as you know some of the stuff that you had to delve into for console wars so why oculus yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, and that, that that made it a lot harder for me. But so I guess to take you back into my mindset, um, I like I said earlier, it was very hard for me to find another topic that I was interested in spending. You know, for, so for me, it's like the way I write a book, I know that I'm going to spend two, three, four years on it. I'm going to be waking up every day working on this thing because it, it becomes my life. So it's really hard to find a topic that I'm interested in and largely because of the people. There were some other stories I found interesting, but I didn't really like talking to people as much. Um, and so like I was immediately charmed by by Palmer and Brendan Areeb, the you know, and Nate Mitchell and Mike, the other co-founder. Uh, John Carmack was obviously, he played a key role early on and then later joined the company. Um, and then also in terms of like why I bit so big in that story that was still unfolding and that people, you know, wasn't as uncovered video game history, like stuff from the eighties and nineties was because, you know, to me, Sega and Nintendo, um, the subtitle of the book is that it's this, you know, say the battle with the find a generation. And I did genuinely believe that like the, what would define like this period of time for video games would be VR. I was obviously wrong about that, or at least I'm wrong to date. Um, so, so part of my belief was like, you know, I just put on the headset for the first time and I was so blown away. Like a lot of people and felt like this is going, this is the future. I want to, you know, write about this as it's happening. Um, and like I said, that, that did not, VR is not as nearly as successful as, uh, as the people on the story thought as I would have expected. I mean, I, I think I always believe it was going to be a slow build and it kind of has been, but, um, but, but still you would have, 
you know, I, I would have thought it would be happening faster. Um, and, and more so, like, I would have thought that the team would still be there. I didn't think that that by the time the book came out, almost everyone from the company would be gone. Um, and then, and, and, and part of it too was like, uh, the, the challenge of seeing if I could write a story as it was unfolding. Like, you know, when I went to sell or pitch console wars, I said here, you know, from the very first day after doing my research, I said, here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the end. Here's like a chapter outline with this book. I had no idea what it was going to become. I didn't know where it would end. Um, that was scary, but that was also fun. And also, um, it was, it, you know, like I, uh, it, it was really interesting to be speaking to these people as it was happening. Like, I wish that I could have been in touch with Tom Quincy as the console war story is happening. And you also learn a lot more because, you know, when, 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 when interviewing all the people from console wars, they had the benefit of knowing how things turned out. So things that might've seemed like a big deal, you know, they probably didn't remember as much, uh, Things that, I mean, things that didn't seem like a big deal in as much, and things that did, like like you, you know, they almost have a preconceived narrative of things. Whereas when I, if I'm interviewing Oculus people and they're dealing with a backlash or they're dealing, they're planning something and they don't know how it's going to go, like that was really fascinating. I also thought that, um, like the, there was a benefit to sort of what you're saying, like that there was the information was more readily available. Like there were no emails during the Sega Nintendo battle, or there was by the end of like '94 or so, but like. But like this is a for for this book, I literally went through twenty five thousand emails and had access to all this information, and so I could, um, you know, I, I for for me who's just personally curious, I can get like go as far down the rabbit hole as as you know much further down the rabbit hole, um, and so that was really fascinating, um, and and I think and like I think that like most stories, even the ones that are in the public sphere and which you you know. I don't mean to say like Oculus was, uh, you know, misleading, but like there was so much more to it than what was being reported on their Kickstarter page. And like, you know, again, of course, that's more than most companies do and more than Sega Nintendo did. But like there was still I had no idea that like Palmer was living in a trailer at the beginning of the story. I had no idea of like how these guys all came together. And I also like I said, I write everything with my grandma in mind. So my grandma wasn't really reading the Wired article. She wasn't a Kickstarter backer. And I also really it was really important to me and it was one of the harder things with that book was I wanted to write a book that I thought would still be as good and as relevant 10 years from now, whether or not I was successful or not, but I didn't want it to just be like, here's all the newsworthy things that are in the book. Like I wanted it to be a story like console wars that could stand on its own. Um, and then the last thing that was really important to me was because I, I was and still am a believer in, in the VR technology and what it could do is I wanted to help, uh, bring the story to people like my grandma, people who would have no interest in VR, but now after reading the book, maybe would be willing to try it to talk to her grandson or to, uh, you know, who saw that there's a human face behind this seemingly science fiction technology. So um, it was part of, you know, I, I thought that the book could be a bit of like an ambassador to people like that. Awesome. All right. If so, I could interject on that, actually, absolutely. just to talk about my experience. Um, I'm 21 years old. I was not really alive for most of the console wars stuff. And so I feel very not disconnected, but I don't have as much of a connection as you or nice one might have. But I, I was in high school during the events of history of the future. And I can say, Hey, I remember hearing about that Kickstarter. I remember, you know, all the things that happened to the point where there's a point in, um, in the book where uh, I guess it's a text message or an email, but Palmer lucky is talking with, I forget who, I don't want to think it's Nate Mitchell um, about how 
the McRib is back. The McDonald's McRib. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No Ralph Patel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. something I remember being in a high school, like learning about Oculus, but also my friends freaking out. Oh, the McRib is back. Oh my gosh. And so yeah. it, it's something as I lived through it, you know, I can look back to those exact moments and that's really cool. And that's something I didn't really get with console wars. So wanted to also touch on that yeah. here. Like I, I really, I, 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 I want part of the reasons that the books are my two books are both like 500 pages. And as opposed to like a Ben Mesrick book, which I obviously love, you know, they're about half that size. It's cause I try to, I, it's really important to me to try to get more of the pop culture and more of the expanded aspects of the industry. Um, and so like, you know, I, I think it would be easier for an editor to say, oh, why do we need this line about the Nick Rib that doesn't have anything to do with mm-hmm. like an Oculus? But I really want for people like you or, you know, like I, I wanted to have those cultural connections. I want to put it in a time and a place. And so I'm glad that it resonated with you. It's um, cool. Hilarious. When I was reading the book, the McRib was actually back in my region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. <laughs> All right. So well, I'll tell you, one of my favorite additions I mean, most of the stuff that I added for the enhanced edition, like the 70 pages of new stuff, it's like very relevant, you know, businessy, Facebooky stuff. But some of it too is just like fun character stuff that that maybe my editor wasn't psyched about putting in before. But like, like the Mick Rib thing, it was a, uh, it was like the way that it happens in the book is like Palmer says, "Guess what?" to his friend Narav, and you think that it's going to be like some big tech thing because there's so much big tech stuff going on, and he's like, "The Mick Rib is back." And then uh, one of the additions that I was able to add was like a follow-up conversation that they had two days later that I always thought was funny, where Narav says like, um, Narav says to Palmer, he says like, "Hey, I have some good news" or something like that. And Palmer, he's like, Palmer's like, "I already know the good news. The McRib is back." And then Narav is like, "No, no, no. Well, yeah, but like the good news with like our mobile VR headset." And I just like that Palmer was. I already know the good news. The good news that sounds like Palmer actually, straight up. Yes. Yeah. So. This question is a little bit weird, but I gotta ask. When I originally had you on the podcast, and you were pretty early in the in the stages of the book, the second book, I it sounded like your the book was going to be a little bit more encompassing when it came to other VR companies. And uh, yeah. I found this article series you had done uh, I, for the life of me, I could not refine it for this interview where you delved into other companies like the Void. Uh, yeah, yeah. The focus yeah, on the I wrote VR. And uh, yeah, I wrote about the void and a few other companies that were doing like arcade location based VR. Yeah, yeah good memory. Like six different companies, and I kept trying to find it. Like my iPad broke somewhere in between, and I didn't set it up the same way, and I had it bookmarked on the old iPad. But it was a great read, and you told the story of like four to uh, between four and six companies that were all working in either the VR or the AR space, and how they're. It all, it all kind of came together in the end, and I was wondering, did this exit the book, or was this always its separate thing, or did the narrative of the book shrink just to focus on Oculus? That's an awesome question. I'm, I'm glad you remembered that, um, and because I don't, because a few other people knew that and have asked me about it. But so, l- like I said, like I, I, I prefer as much as possible to not have a, an agenda, have a plan. I like to just keep getting as collecting as much ingredients as I can and then figuring out like what's the best meal to make. Um, and definitely early on, I was thinking that this would be, you know, Oculus would be a big part of the story, but just like one part of the story. Um, and, and um, you know, maybe 
Valve and HTC Vive and would be a bigger part of it. And then maybe companies like The Void. Um, and then the more I thought about it, I was really thinking in terms of like what I said about how, how can I write a book that 10 years from now people will still want to read? And I, and I was th trying to think like, I guess an analogy, a, a, a comp that kept coming to mind was like Mad Men. Like if you were going to tell a story of advertising the '60s, you have two options. Or I guess you have a lot of options. But like the two obvious ones to me seem: you can tell a story with like here's ten different agencies and here's what ten different companies are up to, or you can just focus on Sterling Cooper and through them try to tell the other story. But obviously, you are cutting off those other. You know, it is much more. Um, you know, tunnel vision on this. And I, and I felt that that was the way to go because the characters were so fascinating and because what happened to Oculus, because Oculus was driving the VR revolution and uh, and because what happened to them, I think is pretty indicative of what happened to a lot of other companies. Um, the one caveat though to that was uh, like, you know, uh, if I were to do console wars over, one thing I would do would I probably want to spend more time with like one of the developers, uh, you know, like in software with Primark would be a good example, or even uh, with Acclaim and, and with Midway and the creation of Mortal Kombat and basically track that from its infancy to, to where it comes into the story. And so, because and also because Oculus was, you know, Oculus, their developer kits, the DK headsets that came out in 2013, they were not for, for me and you, they were for developers. Like, it, like their customer was developers, not, not us. Um, and so I wanted to get more of the developer perspective. And so having, uh, you know, I, I think a good, portion of you know the, like the, the second biggest storyline in the book is about paul bettner and playful corp which created lucky's tale um and and uh and i think it's very telling that that i they make great games but they're no longer making vr games cool. because that's because the industry did not support it because oculus failed in in their promise to companies like that that there was going to be this great gold rush um and so that was that was the extent that i was really willing to explore other companies um because i did feel like with with some well structured storytelling, I could still get in enough of other stuff, um, like like the how the relationship with Valve and how that did sort of lead to the Vive, and also um, you you see Sony's early interest. And then the one thing I didn't want to do was like I didn't want to like shoehorn in some of that story. Like I'm sure that there's a great book to be written about HTC's commitment to making the Vive to making a VR headset, um, and I didn't want to just do like a uh, one, you know, a, a one page version of that. Um, that's that I did. I, I, I uh, and, and then I guess also like because of the second half of the book and because it became more like what you said, like a sort of like a sequel to Accidental Billionaires to me, it was like, it was more, it was as much a look at Silicon Valley as it was at the gaming industry. Like in the, in the updated edition, there's gonna, there's like the one company I do look at is Google, which did Google Cardboard and sort of the creation of that, which feels you know, very much in line with how Silicon Valley operates. Um, and yeah, so like I, I there's a lot of interviews that led to, uh, you know, great background information, but their companies weren't written about. Um, and, and that's sometimes tough, but I, you know, the most important person to me is the reader. I, I don't want to, I want to make sure that they have an interesting story that will deliver all the information for them. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, cu I couldn't think of like a, I, I, I couldn't, I, I really like the void. I love their work. I love the guys there. I couldn't think of like a good reason to like, like, like the void being part of the story didn't enhance it in any way. And, and, and ditto for other companies, you know, the void, I'm just using it as an example. Um, but I really tried to just, uh, I guess, I guess the more the, 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 
the VR news and what the you know hot new things were expanding, the more I wanted to narrow the scope of what I was actually focusing on because I felt like that's at least where I knew there was a good drama. And from their perspective, I could see other things happening. Awesome. Yeah. And to me, I love the Voids product. We uh, have a Void experience. Yeah. We have the Star Wars experience here in Orlando. I live in Florida. So that's awesome. I haven't that one. Now, they have so many other cool experiences, but they just shut down the Ghostbusters, which is so odd considering yeah. that new movie is coming out. But still, um, yeah, I, I, when I was talking to you, it just seemed like that scope of that book was bigger. And let me, let me be fair. I'm happy with the way that the book kind of, because I don't, like you were saying, I think it would get, it gets harder to tell that story when you start throwing in these other VR companies uh, that, that all have, you know, good products, but focusing on like the, you know, the, the Oculus and the HTC Vive definitely felt like the right way to go for the book. So <laughs> I'm glad that there is another medium for me to find this. I mean, and I did have trouble finding this article for the re, you know, for this interview, but it, it's, it's out there somewhere. It can't be found people. <laughs> so you go look it up. Yeah. And um, then also like, like, of course, the way that the ending of the book became so much about politics and about Facebook, which was, I mean, Facebook, I was planning to write about politics. I had no interest in writing about. I, I don't really like politics. I don't really want to, it's definitely not my forte to write about. And like that made it even harder to like try to show what the void was doing when you're dealing with someone, you know, going through political discrimination and cover up at Facebook and like all this stuff that became not about VR, but that felt like pretty important because it showed you, how Facebook operates and how and some of why they make some of the decisions they make that impact consumers. All right, so that's it for my line of questioning. I'm going to let my partner take the wheel. Yeah, he's 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 going to hit you with the hard ones. I softballed you. Yeah. Um. So you've already kind of touched on this here and there for the fact gathering processes for um for history of the future. But how is the process of fact gathering different between that and console wars? Really great question because that I I feel like there was such a big difference. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, if we're talking about just the idea of something happening in the moment or over the past few years versus twenty five years ago. Um, also, like let like let's let's face it, like part of the problem that happened with Palmer was because of, in my opinion, bad journalism, or at least because of journalism and the way journalism operates. And so, part of my approach differed part of my approach evolved because I didn't want to be what I thought the problem was. Like I used to think that, uh, you know, like in console wars, it's recreated dialogue. So if Tom says, Oh, I had a conversation with Al about, you know, this movie or about this, how this product can be cool. Uh, I, I always to, in most cases I worked with the people. So like what, what resulted was pretty, uh, you know, seemed to reflect both, you know, it felt like in the spirit, basically I felt like the goal there was, create a conversation that was in the spirit of what had happened. I no longer felt like the in the spirit um, was a good enough criteria for, for this book. I felt like everything that I, every line of dialogue in there needed to be a verbatim quote from something that I had recorded because I, because I didn't want to have little inact or, you know, inaccuracies, especially in this case, when I could have it, you know, there's, no, I feel pretty confident. There's no way that Tom and Al could remember what they talked about 25 years ago in specifics. Whereas now I felt like people could, there was also email records, or at least if they didn't remember the specifics, they remembered, they would, you know, they would probably give me a similar answer to what they had given the person. Like, you know, like a good example is like Nate Mitchell asking Palmer or maybe Brendan, like, what did your, what does your father do Palmer? I feel like his answer to them was somewhat similar to what, 
he said to me when I said, Palmer, what did your father do? Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I wanted to be much more meticulous. I also wanted to uh, provide like more, uh, I wanted to make sure that it was clear that because of some of the controversial subject matter in the book that like, this was not my opinion, Blake Harris's author. Like these were facts and in a lot of cases as much as possible. Like, here's where it came from. It was from this email, this actual line. It wasn't like me editorializing. And, and I wanted to try to give readers the chance to like determine whether something was good or bad. Um, the only place actually in the whole book where I feel like I stepped in as an author was like a, one part where uh, about, people at Facebook being like Facebook employees being upset about the election results and feeling like that was proof that they had messed up as an organization. And I made a comparison to like, that would be like AT&T feeling like they had done their jobs poorly because, you know, Reagan won the election and feeling like that's not really what you should be doing. Um, and even in that case, I kind of like, I debated cutting that because I did feel like that was the only place where I went out of my way to make a point. <laughs> whereas the rest of it, I wanted to leave up to the reader. Um, yeah, so so like my process was very different with this book. I, I I transcribed every single interview. I used all the dialogue was actual quotes from people. It was I my in my mind it was like a documentary where, um, you know, obviously I'm not telling you know if someone has a forty five minute interview, it's not pasting that all in, but I'm taking the lines from here and there and constructing it in a way that actually you know made sense for a narrative. But I was much more diligent, and I think that was a good thing. I think it forced me to raise my game because I didn't want to be sort of the problems that I was seeing with a lot of journalism today. Yeah, um, I, I have to agree. You did a really good job being unbiased, especially with how charged I feel like towards the end of that political section gets. Um, and I do think that the comparison you make about at and Facebook swaying voters is a good comparison. And it's still kind of, it's necessary, I guess, to say that yeah, that's not quite what Facebook's job should be to influence the public, but you don't really just, like, get, like yell at Facebook about that. You just sort of put it out there, and I think that was good. Um, yeah. Well, then, you open the book, though, yeah. at a pivotal moment in the history of Oculus when Mark Zuckerberg, he announces the purchase of Oculus to the employees, and there's this notion it's not qu quite sitting right, and Palmer seems very confident in the decision, uh, but why did you start the book here? No, that's a really good question. Um, I think that I did want to establish early on that this would there would be like an accidental billionaire expense aspect to be known that Facebook would be a part of this. Um, mm -hmm. I also thought that Mark Zuckerberg became an important enough character that it was important to have him early. And then largely, I just wanted uh, to get Mark's vision for for VR in there and to show, um, you know, because I think a, a big one of the big questions the book answers or it aims to answer is like, like why, what did they do in 18 months that made them worth $3 billion? Or like, what could it, like I've had other startups say like, what could we learn from this? Um, obviously the value is like in the eye of the beholder. I, it still seems shocking to me that they were sold for that much money. But um, I wanted like, you know, part of it too was that it was appealing to market the right time. Like you felt like he missed out on the mobile wave and um, you wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted to not miss out again. So it's not always just about like, it's like, you know, timing is such a big part of it. Um, and I thought that, um, you know, a, a big, one of the issues, like I remember my first editor on the book, she would always tell me that it was going to be hard. She used an analogy like uh, 
it's like writing about VR is like dancing about architecture. Like there's no like, like you can't convey the experience. And early on, maybe, you know, I could wax poetic and I realized like, there's no point. The best thing I can do is not to show, try to like use glossy language to describe Palmer's Rift prototype, but it's actually just to use the exact language of John Carmack talking about it. So John Carmack, someone you respect, and he says, this is what's good, this is what's bad. Um, and so I kind of liked the idea of Mark Zuckerberg sort of being more of like a neutral observer to the story, um, saying like, here's what I like about what this company has done, and at least giving us sort of like a non-obsessive um, uh, VR person's POV, because obviously Palmer thinks it's the best because he loves VR, but but Mark you know, didn't have to get involved. And uh, I wanted to at least show where where his eyes were at. Yeah, he's much more of like an investor in Oculus than an active participant in the, the technology behind it, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's uh, very nice. Um, in the beginning of the book, though, most people view VR as an un unsustainable gimmick, um, always doomed to fail in the market. Uh, but do you think that with so many companies now with headsets, uh, even like the cheaper ends, like you find at Walmart for 20 bucks, uh, as we've already sort of top touched, it's still slow. And, but do you think it'll stick? It hasn't dropped in the market yet. I think it'll stick. I don't time. know. I mean, obviously no one knows, but like the, the sad thing is that I have such conflicted feelings about Facebook. I don't like how they treated me with the book. I don't like how they treated Palmer. I don't like that. They created an environment that, people, good people like Brendan and Nate and Mike ended up leaving. Like, but at the same time, I do like VR. And I do believe that if Facebook were to say tomorrow, you know what, we're, we're giving up on VR. We tried, it didn't work. I believe that it would dry up. I believe that those headsets would no longer be in Walmart in a year from now, even though it's obviously not a v Facebook headset you're talking about. But like, I just feel like Facebook is basically subsidizing the entire industry um, in the sense that they are putting billion, you know, they spent $3 billion on Facebook, on Oculus. Mm -hmm. They spent billions on research and development. They spent billions on um, investing in content. Um, and, and if they stopped doing that, I don't, I think the whole, uh, I think the music would stop. And so um, as long as they still have that appetite, I think that the I think the VR will stick around because the the point the truth is like it is not profitable even this many years later it's not like there's a reason that Paul Bettner and Playful aren't making VR games like even the, from the content creator standpoint it's not profitable let alone from the hardware makers there's definitely no reason to be in now um, and I, I I you know I, I think that maybe it'll take a company like Apple whether it's from an AR play or maybe a VR play um, to really make a difference but um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm still, I'm still bullish on it. Cause I just think that like, maybe I'm just like a romantic at heart, but there, when you put on a headset and have a good VR experience, it is incredible. It is beyond words. It is better than a telephone call. It is, you know, you actually feel like, like you're in the room with someone else you, or you can be made to feel that way. And, and my brother lives in Colorado. I would, I wish I would like for there to be a way for us to watch a movie together and to actually feel like I'm with him as opposed to just both having it on the phone or something. So I still believe in it. And, and, and those things, those reasons that I'm talking about are more the reasons that Facebook bought it. You know, obviously Oculus was by gamers for gamers step into the game. Their whole thing was gaming, but Facebook's interest was the social aspect of it all. And so I still believe that, that 
in, in that side of the technology. Um, what about you, actually, as someone who's like younger, who didn't live through previous VR failures? Do you how do you feel about VR? Do you still believe in it or think it's going to take off? I, I very much do. I think it's still a slow build. Um, I am the proud owner of an Oculus as well as the PlayStation VR. Um, I love uh, Astrobot. I think that's such a fu fun game. Uh, it, it, I'm a big advocate for um, Ape Escape as well, just to be able to see people. And you can see the DNA in there. Um, so gaming, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, super, uh, the Lucky's Tale originally uh, was also sort of in the same vein as this VR 3D platformer, which is really cool. But then the experiences, I think, where it really shines. Uh, you, you've probably seen, you know, VR chat um, and uh, yep. what, recreation room, all of the internet. And those are where the experiences are. People do VR yoga classes and movie nights, stand-up comedy, and that's wonderful. And I still think it is kind of niche. I think small community still, but it's a great experience. Just to I yeah, I also kind of get to why I wanted to open the book with, like the like basically the way that Mark saw VR and the way very much more like Brendan, co-founder Brendan Arib saw it versus Palmer was like a trajectory similar to smartphones. Mm -hmm. um, with, you know, the, the 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 adoption rate of smartphones is like so unlike any other technology, certainly in my life, but I would imagine over like the past hundred years, like usually usually it is much more of a slow burn. Like 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 one other thing that's going to be in the paperback is just like a small conversation between Brendan and Palmer where Palmer sees it more. It, originally on, he saw the the potential for VR as more like the PC industry back in the 70s where even when you had Apple being this great success story, it was still mostly homebrew enthusiasts that were, that were buying this. Like my family didn't own a computer until like the mid 90s, which was 15 years after the success story. And so like, that's probably much more like what it's going to be. But because we just lived through this crazy smartphone thing where we went from, you know, no one having a smartphone, but almost everybody on the planet having a smartphone in like five or 10 years, I thought it was important to show like that's, that's what Mark was thinking to some degree. Um, I mean, he, I, I, he obviously has not publicly admitted that he's been disappointed by Facebook sales, but uh, I mean, by Oculus sales, but like, based on the internal email, this was not what they projected. They did think it was going to be much more like 50 million to hundred million people five years after it came out having these headsets, which is obviously not the case. I keep thinking that as, as a gamer, just pure hardcore gamer, I keep thinking as much as I think this is, you know, VR is a great application for gaming. I keep thinking that we keep utilizing it in the wrong way. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers. I, I When I think about VR, I keep thinking about, what it more could be as far as like an educational tool. One of the coolest things I've seen using VR was I saw an open heart surgery in VR and they did it to as a teaching tool. And I, and I keep thinking, it's like, are we, are we focused with VR in the wrong ways? Are, sh should we be for so centrally focused on video games when it comes to VR that we're, we're missing out like the obvious things, like the teaching mechanics of VR. And I obviously Facebook's, idea for VR as, you know, kind of highlighted in the book and post book, they don't seem to fall in line with what VR can be just what it should be right now. And that's, no, that's a really good point. Like, cause I, I mean, just for, for people who haven't really tried VR or who sort of wonder why, like, okay. So in theory, VR is just like 
a game. It's a better version of a game. Like how could how could it? Every game should be better in VR. But then, just like a very easy example of why that's not the case is like, let's say you're playing John Madden football. The running back moves at a rate faster than you're used to, or in a first-person shooter. Like if you're like basically a first-person shooter character is like a superhuman character. Like they run faster than a human, and they and like so when you're actually in it, it feels weird. It feels like sometimes even like nauseating to be moving at these rates that are not natural. So that does make it like, Oh, it's not just like an enhancement of a typical game. Um, and, and so some of the stuff that you're talking about, like, like the open heart surgeries or, you know, going to visit just different destinations, like that does seem like better use cases. Cause that's more like real life or at least, you know, real life, but with access to places that you normally wouldn't be able to have access to. Um, and then it becomes a tough thing where uh, I, I think Facebook has, gravitated away from gaming more than most people would have expected and maybe you wanted. Uh, but, but, but like, how do you get doctors? How do you get hospitals to, to like invest in this? Even if Facebook's willing to invest, like what is the upside to the hospital? Why does like, who cares if you're in an open heart surgery? Obviously it's cool. And, but like, there's not like a business, there's not a good business model sense for it, at least not yet, especially when there's, then you get to like the whole core chicken versus egg problem. The, of the of, that the book tries to show it's like well yeah if 100 million people had headsets then it would be worth the hospital investing ways to have relatives view it or younger doctors trained that way but now only a million people have headsets so it's, there's n even if everybody who had a headset bought it you still would lose money um and so that's one of the more interesting things and that's and that's like what i yeah that's one of the more interesting things about the oculus proposition in general like I, one of the most intelligent parts of the of the sell of oculus was brendan's idea to do it as like a developer kit to not do it as a consumer product to basically say we need years of people creating content to actually have this content to entice people to help solve this chicken versus egg problem um and thinking about it that way was kind of fascinating because like i love i love television i always have it on when i'm working but you think about like what value is a television in the 1940s 50s without television shows and then what's the point of making television shows when no one has a tv set and like how do you how did we actually get to the point where both things existed in in, in a good way and like um you know you know when you used to hear things like oh tv is going to fail and you're like oh only an idiot would think that you start to think well actually that would kind of make sense like how like how 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 do we get to, how do we solve that chicken versus egg problem and, and that's still where we're at it's still a bit of a problem and um, that's why i said like you have facebook basically subsidizing the industry getting people to make content, paying them to make the content, even at a loss, just because they want that content to exist to entice more people. Um, but so touching on that maybe a bit more from Palmer's eyes, um, Palmer's journey is fascinating. It's all about this kid who is just tinkering away in the trailer, making breakthroughs with a technology that most people just think isn't relevant. Um, and he turns into a valuable commodity that everyone really wants to finger in this pie um, other companies try to emulate, fast track it with Vive, PSVR. Um, do you think that these other products hurt the image of VR that Palmer strive for? Um, great question. I would, I would say yes, but also like I don't blame them. And also there's no, you know, basically having a monopoly is the best way to make something work like i think that if when i started working on conquerors if the week that my book came out 10 other books about conquerors came out there's probably a good chance that it would just make people be like oh i don't know which one to read or like oh it's such a like everyone's talking about this now <laughs> like basically um i think that the vibe coming out at the same time as the rift definitely hurt vr in general but like 
the Vive in many ways is better. And mm-hmm. it's like I, I I take my I tip my hat to HTC and to Valve for doing that. But um, I think that when Oculus was the entire industry, it definitely was better for VR. Um, and and like I think that one of the biggest missteps that Oculus made was just taking so long. You know, there is like that that saying that like you know uh, perfection is the enemy of good. Um, where perfection is the enemy of great. And that was how it often felt to me. Like even nowadays with the quest, which is an incredible headset, incredible value, it's still like, like, oh, like someone could say, oh, it doesn't have this. It doesn't, didn't have finger tracking. It didn't, it doesn't have, um, you know, X, Y, and Z features. But like at some point you have to put out a consumer product and, 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 and put your, and consider that your best foot forward for a period of time. Um, And so, I think that Oculus consistently, continually delaying it opened the the door for other competitors um, with, like I said, like generally a better headset. Or I, one of my favorite parts of the book was like an email from a guy named Brant Lewis where he's talking about um, the vibe basically doing what he thought he had signed up to do with Oculus. And like the, and the Rift basically by the time it came out in 2016 being like neither feast nor foul where it was not the cheap VR headset. It wasn't the PS... VR, which is like mm-hmm. obviously still like seven hundred bucks or whatever, but um, but if you have a PS, if you have a PlayStation, it was only a few. It was only a couple hundred bucks, a few hundred bucks. So that was a cheaper option, or it was not the high end option like the Vive, which did room scale and 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 it had motion controllers at first. And so the Oculus was like they were no longer the company that was pushing the envelope, and they were no longer the company that was offering affordable VR. So what were they? And that was like that would not have happened if there wasn't competition, but also, I think that it's fair to say that we wouldn't have the quest if not for that competition. Like, we, like even if VR as a whole might be better theoretically, like the products themselves have gotten better because competition. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure it won't surprise you guys to know that I'm a big fan of competition. I wrote a book, Console Wars. I believe that pushing each other does lead to better, better products. Um, but I think that's, but I think that's interesting because like that, that's a great question. I do, I, I did like a lot of mental exercise of just like, well, what would the world have seemed like if Valve never got involved with VR, if he didn't get involved? And, and I do think probably in the short run, better VR, quote unquote. Um, actually talking a bit more about Valve, um, when Palmer Lucky and I believe Michael Antonov, uh, visit Valve to get the Kickstarter video done, um, Valve is sort of like hesitant about VR technology. They don't think it's going to take off too well, but they do have a very small team working on AR projects uh, over at Valve as well. And it seems implied that uh, Valve thinks the AR technology uh, has more applications and is superior to AR in that uh, AR displays are, you know, superior. Um, but what do you, what do you think about the future of AR technology? Um, I mean, at some point, like basically AR and VR become the same thing when it's, when mm-hmm. the fidelity is there, it's just a matter of like, uh, you know, like how are you just going to make yourself, um, an insulate, it's basically just a matter of how much of the outside world you're going to block out. Um, and, and I would agree like with Michael Abrash at the time, like AR does have better applications. It makes more sense that you, you know, if I'm going to go out and get a slice of pizza after this, that. I, you know, that I can, can I, that, that this uh, technology moves with me and that it gives me access to information that might, might be in the real world or that I might just want to be accessing hands-free. Um, there's also some creepy elements to that. I do like the, you know, I, I like the idea of being home in a VR headset, um, but it makes sense. And like, and like, uh, I'm glad you touched on 
what Valve was actually up to at the time because they deserve a lot of credit, obviously. They, they, if not for them, I don't think, uh, or I know for a fact, DK2 wouldn't have been as good. The Rift headset wouldn't have been as good. But I also, you see how even a company like Valve that has so much, that makes a, that makes a lot of money from Steam um, and has the money to devote to resources still is unwilling to commit to, to taking this leap. Um, and that is ultimately kind of getting back to your earlier question um, that we talked about at the top of the show. Like, why why did I mostly focus on Oculus as opposed to other companies? And it's like Oculus was the one that was going to do this no matter what. And and as like as a storyteller, as a romantic, that's the, that's what I like. Like like I um, you know I'm sure there were people who would have written console wars if someone had paid them to do so. But like I. I I think that what helped me write it was that I was going to do it, whether some a publisher paid me a lot or whether it was me selling pamphlets on the street. Like I was going to do it. And that's, those are the kinds of stories I like where someone is committed to doing it. Palmer was going to do this. Obviously Brendan and Nate and Mike doing it with him made it so much bigger and so much more successful. But I think that it was amazing that he cared enough about this, that he was going to do it. And, and, and those are the people that I often like writing about. Those are the people I think, change history the most and so like it was always it was significant to me that even the the some of the brightest minds at valve michael abrash and Oppen binstock they left valve which is a great company to come to oculus because valve wasn't making enough of a commitment to this thing and 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 you know and and also understandable from valve's perspective like it's it, it, it was risky and as we've talked about over the past half hour like it's not making money like i don't know that valve even made a bad decision but as someone who loves VR, it's a decision that I don't like. Um, so going back to Zuckerberg, uh, in that sort of moment when he buys the company, uh, Zuckerberg states that he believes that VR is the future of computing, just like smartphones were to computers and so on and so forth, um, and it would replace smartphones. Um, but the original intent of the Oculus device was for gamers getting to the game, etc. Um do you think that VR has more potential for gaming or computing or both? I think, I think both, obviously. I think that like what it, I think that, it, I think that Mark will, what he said will be right in the long run. I mean, I think an easy way to think about it is kind of just the idea of 3d versus 2d. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if, I, if you're looking at a photograph, it's, a, it's a two dimensional image. But VR or mixed reality or whatever the technology um, is is like a th you can have things exist in 3D. You can have 3D television. You can have 3D everything, which I think is you know 3D television failed as a as a business. But like in general, I think that it's just um, it, when we have the computing, if we if we and when we have the computing power to do these things, it's going to make for more enriched experiences, like almost more like Harry Potter esque experiences of like you know the newspaper it actually has like you know, characters moving or interactive things. Um, and, I, you know, I, 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 my interest in VR was always beyond the gaming. But what I loved about the gaming, what I liked about Oculus was that it, they had the roadmap. Like, basically, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's long-term vision for VR is pretty similar to Brendan's, pretty similar to John Carmack's, pretty similar to Palmer's, who all have different visions. But it's like, in the end, perfect VR, we all sort of can imagine what that looks like. It's just a matter of how do you get there and it, like, do we get there? And, um, you know, like gaming was a way people, gamers, 
you know, you could, that was an audience that was willing to spend a few extra hundred dollars for a better experience or to potentially have a better experience. And that could sustain businesses in theory to get us to the point where we can keep investing money in this and get us to that point. So that was what I liked about the gaming focus um, of, of Oculus and why I, I think it's kind of sad that they abandoned that um, focus so early on. I think they've gotten back to it a bit more in recent years. But first, like, you know, one of my favorite moments in the book that just felt kind of telling was like that character, the, the guy, Chris Galizzi, who worked at Hyperkin doing peripherals and how he had been working on a, a, on a gun, which is a very common thing in a first person shooter, which is one of the more common types of video games. And mm -hmm. Facebook was not going to have a gun in their game for, they didn't want their brand to be associated with guns, which is they're right. And they're, and it's understanding, but that also showed that like, all right, gamers are not a focus because gamers would want a gun. Um, and that was a pretty pivotal moment for me. Um, so coming up to my last two questions before we sort of um, turn it over to back to a nice one here. Um, so when Carmack is negotiating with Zuckerberg, uh, John Carmack shares this vision of a future where VR is everywhere and big bulky headsets are reduced to normal slim lightweight glasses or like what we have on here. Yep. Um, and they can be switched from VR to AR on the fly. Um, do you think that that future is still possible one day? Yeah, I definitely do. And like, I feel like the way that helps convey that to people who don't, you know, uh, who, who maybe haven't tried VR or don't really know what it means. is like, um, you know, I have a television over there that's I don't know, 40 inches, 50 inches, whatever it is um, that probably at the time when I bought it cost like $1,500 or thousand dollars, but there could be, there will, there will be a world, I believe, and it could be a world five or 10 years from now where you have glasses on and you spend $1 in app store for a 40 inch TV and wherever, my head turns the TV, the quote unquote screen still stays there and it'll present like, I guess one, one really eye opening experience for me was um, like a virtual cinema. It's talked about in the book um, very briefly, but like, you know, um, my TV is only 40 inches, but I can put on a headset and actually feel like I'm in a movie theater and have a screen that feels to me like it's a hundred feet wide. So that idea that you can have a, hundred foot thing just because of how the this the the dimensions work um and, and what your perception is like that i think that it's very reasonable that it can replace a lot of screens where it will be kind of weird is like i watch most of my television with my wife so since we're, since we're not actually looking at a real television and it's just an app in our glasses or contact lenses or whatever you know there's obviously ways to accommodate that if you can sync it up but, but it's kind of weird it's kind of um so but but I, but i do believe like you know john john of course is a genius he's also not always right but i think that he's more right than wrong and in the long run i think that he's going to be right with that that's fair um then my last question before i turn it back over to nice one uh probably one of the more um intense questions I'm going to throw at you. Uh, so Palmer Lucky is the main character uh, sort of in the book. It follows his journey pioneering the modern VR technology as we know it today. Um, it's mostly his story. But then near the end of the book, Palmer is ousted from the company for his po political beliefs and is the target of big lawsuits from companies like Zenimax. Um, but since for the most of the book, we follow Palmer's perspective on his journey, um, it kind of creates the image of Palmer being portrayed as a victim, uh, despite the book trying to be very an unbiased history of the future. Um, so do you believe Palmer Lucky is a victim? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know, perspective, I guess. Oh yeah. 
I, I mean, I definitely believe he's a victim, but he's also someone who's uh, been incredibly fortunate in his life financially and with, you know, how he gets to spend his time. So like, I, I believe that he was treated unfairly. I don't believe that anyone should lose sleep feeling bad for him. I think that to me, what I liked, like, like, you know, some of my favorite responses to people reading the book was like, I, they're like, oh, I just read 500 pages and I don't know whether Palmer's a good guy or a bad guy. I don't know whether I should feel bad for him. And it's like, like these are the tough questions in life. Should you feel bad for someone who, in my opinion, was mistreated and was a victim of uh, poor reporting and, you know, sort of a, a, a intolerance, political intolerance, but also at the same time is a young guy who's made hundreds of millions of dollars and is going to go on to do other things and is going to be sad for the rest of his life. I don't like, I don't know. I mean, you shouldn't, I don't think you should you know, like go protest and be all upset about it. But like, you know, what I really liked about his story was that I felt like he was just the perfect like avatar for so much of what is happening in culture today. So don't feel bad for Palmer. He's going to be fine. He's a super rich guy, but maybe you see someone online that, that is not well off that is being, you know, bullied online or, you know, being misreported and like they lose their job. Like I would maybe feel bad for that person. And I'd also be more like the hope is that you would just, that, someone, that you would try to be more, not even sympathetic, but more um, interested in trying to understand what actually happened. Like I think the, what, we, what you learn, whether you, uh, whether you like Palmer or not, whether you think he was treated unfairly, I think it's pretty uh, uh, objective to say that, what was reported was not accurate. And so uh, to, to basically try to look beyond the headlines. And that's kind of unfair because the whole point of like journalism is like, you guys shouldn't have to do your own due diligence. You should be able to just trust what someone who's being paid to do this is telling you. Um, but I think that we are beyond the point where we know that, that what we read is not often the truth, that there are agendas involved and that it's just so much easier to like, um, to to make characters out of people, to to say Palmer Lucky is alt right or a white supremacist or a Nazi, and those are such charged words that it's hard. Like once you say them, it's hard to ever put it back, even if there's proof otherwise. Like you feel like, like like you like it's just hard to dissociate those things. And so uh, I like it was it was nice to write about Palmer in that regard because I don't think that um, you that he requires your sympathy. But it does sort of like um, make you think more about other people who have had things like that happen to them that maybe do deserve your sympathy or 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 figuring out how you can like for me personally, I probably I don't I've, ne I've never been a huge like uh, online social media guy, but I'm sure that I retweeted like pile on sorts of things or I was quick to judge someone. And it certainly made me think twice about that. And and I think that we'll all be better off if we didn't have such quick triggers like, you know, in the end um like nobody cared what actually happened not even the journalists when i contacted them to say here's what my research after dealing with all these people firsthand revealed they didn't care because this there had already been a story out there and i think that what i started to see was not that this didn't just happen with college this happens a lot with a lot of different people um and and uh so i guess for me it taught me to be more tolerant in that regard um and and also like um, we don't really need to get too much into it, but like the political thing is largely because Palmer is a Trump supporter and that was very unpopular in Silicon Valley and amongst many people in the tech and gaming press. And I'm personally very much not a Trump supporter. Uh, I'm a 
not Trump hater, you could say. Uh, and so it was very hard for me to try to write that fairly, like, and to to make sure that I was, um, you know, not trying to make you feel like Palmer's a victim, but at the same time, not try to be unfair to him just because he has a different political view than I do. Um, and, and so I felt like overall, my process of writing it and researching it uh, made me more tolerant and open-minded. And I hope that when people read it, they would have a similar outcome. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Very good way to put it. Awesome. Uh, dude, we have so many more questions that are just in line with the political aspect, but we're not going to mess. Like, yeah. You can have me back on. Have me on. You can have me on for a third time. Yeah. I'm going to put these on ice, and I definitely want to have you back on at a later time. But we just we have two more questions, and then we'll go ahead and we'll wrap sure. up. These are, should be easy. What's next for Blake J. Harris? The last six years have been extraordinary. You know, console war, the larger, you know, project and the history of the future. And now with the, getting an expanded edition, what's next? Or are you just laser focused on the tasks I had? Uh, no, I'm always thinking about other stories. Um, like, uh, I, hopefully I'll have some news. But I'm, I'm meeting with my publisher next week to talk about what I want to write about next. So I'll, I'll wait till after that happens to see if they're on board with it too. But but you should, hopefully in the next month or two I'll be able to answer that question and tell you what the research next. Sweet. All right. So last question, real easy, nice and softball. Sock the Hedgehog live action movie comes out on Valentine's Day. Uh, what are your thoughts on the film, the controversy, and uh, are you going to go watch? I'm super excited about it. I'm a huge Ben. Definitely, you know, like is right in my wheelhouse. I think the con you're talking about like the animation CGI thing controversy. I think that's awesome. I think that like, look, if if I put out a book or a sample chapter and a lot of people had strong feedback to it, I, that's really helpful to me. I don't have to change my work to accommodate them, but if they say stuff that I think is helpful, just like between writing console wars in the second book, I learned things. I there was criticism that I thought was valid and it made me do a better job. So I think that it's really awesome that enough people were seemed upset and concerned about Sonic, who is a character I obviously love, that they did a better job. And it seems like the new Sonic is definitely a Sonic that's more adorable and cool and more like the Sonic than I remember. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited. I'll, I, I don't know if my wife will let me take her on uh, like opening night for, cause it's like Valentine's day, but I definitely want to see it opening weekend. Uh, what are you, what about you guys? Are you guys uh, optimistic? See, I, as a huge Sonic fan, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be on the other side of the spectrum. I am going to stay far away from this movie. I, I feel we're going, we're entering a super Mario brothers territory again. And, uh, I'm 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 one of those guys that's like there has not really been a great adaptation of a video game into film and I'm gonna stay away if you know if it comes to Netflix, Redbox, or any of the other streaming services that I the million that I have subscribed to, then I'll I'll give it a watch. But yeah, sorry Sega, I'm, I'm gonna sit this one out. Um, oh, right. I mean I think that uh, I think Sega has not earned your trust. I mean I'm very excited about it, and largely it's because of the Ben Schwartz thing, but like. Sega has not done a great job with Sonic over the past 10, 15 years. I don't think that they should, you know, I think it's right for you to be suspicious. And and uh, hopefully I'll be back when I'm back next time. I'll tell you what an awesome movie it was and you'll see it on Netflix or maybe if it's still playing, you'll see it. All right. Well, Blake, we want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. It's been incredible. Uh, I, I do plan on watching Sonic. Uh, very much so. I... 
don't think that the uh, plot will be that good. I don't think I'm there for the plot. I think I'm there to, for a good romp because there's nothing better on Valentine's Day in the theaters. Right. Yeah, I'm not single. I don't think I'd get away with that even if I wanted to go. <laughs> Watching for the experience to say that I did it, you know? <laughs> All right. Well, Blake, we want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. It's been incredible for us to, you know, delve deeper into your works. I'm personally really excited to go ahead and reread the History of the Future once the expanded edition is released. Uh, I'm also really looking forward to the Console Wars documentary and everything else that you're going to be doing in the future. Uh, do you want to tell your audience where they can find any more of your content? Sure. Uh, I have a website that's just my name, Blake J. Harris, all one word, dot com. I try to put up a lot of like excerpts and articles. I always want, I want people to know what they're getting before they buy something or, you know, and like you, you mentioned earlier, a few articles like about the void. There was something about Lucky's Tale and Playful in there that was on upload that's on the website. And I'm on Twitter at Blake J. Harris NYC. I'm usually pretty responsive. Now is admittedly a tough time with us finishing the doc, but as you guys know, also let listeners know that I had to cancel on the show twice and you guys couldn't have been more gracious. So thank you for your flexibility. Not every host is always uh, so good about that. So uh, it's been a busy time for me and I really appreciate you that you guys being flexible and your audience shouldn't know that you guys are behind the scenes. You're good, good guys to work with. Thank you. We try our best. We love doing these interviews, especially this one. This one means a lot to me. It's, been four years since i interviewed you last in my first interview uh and you've got so much cool shit coming out that i was like how could i not revisit any of this all right awesome so, yeah. well, i look forward to visiting again after the after you see the doc and you can fire as many hardballs as you guys want at me uh, oh, yeah. thanks I'll for having me critical after the doc <laughs> all right uh, but I, I totally look forward to it blues any closing thoughts before we let the go it was really cool seeing your take on this. That's I thank you for sharing. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. Alright, well we don't want to take up too much of your time. We promised you an hour and a half and we're right at that last minute mark. So guys, he told you where you can hit us up. Hit him up at you know where to hit us up at youtube.com slash Nintendo Power Zone. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and all that good shit. Guys, I really hope you enjoyed this interview. Because I'm not gonna lie, they could preen myself like three or four times throughout the course of this one. And uh that gets Copa off of our backs for this. We've now hit our official Copa, you know, protection for this podcast. Blake, thank you so much. We would love to have you back on after the doc comes out. And uh yeah, that's gonna wrap this show up. You guys, thank you so much for watching. And remember to stay fresh. Stay fresh.